Welcome to another episode of the Chop Liver Podcast. We are your hosts, Amay and Elise, and today we are talking to tattoo artist Daniel Feinberg. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here and see you guys and chat again. It's been quite a while. Yeah, I mean, we've been such big fans of you for so many years. Oh, thank so, you like, so we're much. We're so excited to actually have you here and we get to unpack the world of being a tattoo artist in a creative world that, well, from an outsider's perspective, is it's one of the tough ones, one of the creative world tough ones to kind of break into and be successful in. Very much so, it is. And I think also, like, um, why it's so appropriate for the podcast, so many people misunderstand the um, artistry that goes into being a Absolutely. tattoo artist. So I think we want to we wanna really get into that and we really want to tell people... How amazing it is. Great. Thank you so much. What we're so fascinated by, and it's something that in the podcast we've spoken about, is really not convinc- well, convincing people that a career in the arts is something that you can be successful in. There's still a lot of misconception that you need your standard nine to five to be a successful human being, where it's kind of turning the, your passions into careers. And what's what we find so fascinating is that you started your entire career journey and not as a tattoo artist, this actually was based off a career change. You were um, more within an architectural design arena before you became a tattoo artist. And for a very long time. I mean, I only started apprenticing as a tattoo artist very late. I think I was 37 when I started apprenticing. And it was it was a difficult transition to go from working in an architectural firm. I was at that stage in my life an architectural visualizer which means I was using software to create 3D rendered images and animations to sell to clients who wanted to build massive malls everywhere from like South Africa to India. I loved it. It was fantastic. I never had a problem with it. I didn't change over to tattooing because I was hating my job as an architectural visualizer. I had gotten to a, a stage with architectural visualization where I don't think I could have been better than I was considering all the other factors, hardware, having a strong enough computer. Um, I was using software that I couldn't have used better software. It was great. It was wonderful. I had a level of expertise, which um, I was able to produce work and it not be a big deal. But Japanese art, it's it's been something that's been inbred in me since I was six years old. I, I started, I remember the very first time I came across it was we had a TV room, which also had a library, and uh, there was a book there. It was actually a South African printed book, typed photostat pages, and it was called The A to Z of Japan. I cannot remember the name of the author, and it had everything from articles. It was like a dictionary with articles about the postal system in Japan all the way up to the history of the Tokugawa shogunate, and from it caught me from then. So there's always in the background throughout my life, there's been this this love and this interest for Japanese culture, Japanese art, Japanese mythology, how they all tie together. But I had never, ever come across Irizumi or more politely, Wabori, which is Japanese tattooing, until much later in life. That's when I started looking for an artist to tattoo me in that style. It was very difficult. I found Ross Hallam from Hand Style. And he was able to start tattooing Japanese work on me. And it was about the 70th hour 
that I had been on his table being tattooed. He was doing my sleeve and he was doing a creature on my shoulder called the Baku, which is a dream eater. And he was doing these beautiful fine lines on my shoulder. And while I was watching him, it was, as I say, I was very happy in my job. Architectural visualization was a dream job. I was getting paid very well. I was happy at work. I was good at what I was doing. It was perfect. But I just saw him doing these fine lines. And it was the sense of dread. I felt this, oh God, I have to do this. Like, by paycheck, by stability, by happiness. I, I just had to do it. I had to do it. And then I started bothering him for an apprenticeship for three years before he eventually said to me, okay, come through and do it. Um, it's It's been quite a journey. So it's kind of strange when you look at it in retrospect is it's the the core feeling that I had about Japanese culture and art. It was always there and it just, I needed to find a way to make Japanese art or to be involved in Japanese um, myth and culture in an authentic way. And I found it with tattooing. Yeah, so that is incredible just to hear that journey. And and I find it so fascinating because what you did in architecture, architecture, there's nothing more commercial basically than what you were doing. Absolutely. And then I also find it funny that you're saying, okay, bye paycheck, bye happiness was one thing that you were saying. And how come you thought that, you know, your happiness, well, I suppose like people think that when they have this great job and they're going to get this great paycheck and that's, you're going to get the house you want and the car you want and that's happiness. I mean, did you really... You thought that that was, you well, would be unhappy about not having those things. Totally. But also, I mean, it came from a stage, the, the main thing about this whole situation is that none of it would have ever have been possible without my wife because she supported me financially through that entire apprenticeship period, which was a three-year period of not getting paid. Nearing halfway to sort of the end of the apprenticeship, I was starting to do smaller tattoos, but at very reduced rates. But I wasn't able to contribute to the, the upbringing of my daughter or, or the paying of rent or buying of food or anything like that. I, I, I could not have done it. So the truth is, it wasn't such a big jump because I, I, my wife was supporting me. Jen was supporting me completely. And she still does. She still helps out because I'm still getting on my feet that's yes I'm so happy doing what I'm doing I found true happiness doing this every day I learn more every day I do more the happier I get but there's a sacrifice and there's a certain selfishness which comes with it if you think about it because I could still be in architectural visualization and I could probably be a director at a big architectural firm and there would be a lot of expendable capital look I mean it's not all about money as we know you you have to do what drives you but we live in a world where money is very important and it's not fair. I feel it's not fair to like put the whole burden of the financial situation on Jen, but she's allowed me to do that and it's allowed me to become the person I've always meant to be as far as what I do every day. What you said there is like you could so easily just kind of carry it on being in your um, architectural visualization, but something that you noted so well and I think it's something that I'm going to use the word plagues a lot of creative people. It's like they have just the innate desire to create. And I think that we all like that. And I think that what is so incredible about what you're saying is that you basically jumped in with both feet into this 
calling, which I would like to call it, you know, I because, would say it's a calling, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you're sitting on a tattoo table, someone's drawing these fine lines on you, mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, cool, I'm gonna ditch my job, I'm gonna ditch what I'm doing, and I'm gonna go in. I want to. This is what I need to do. Totally, and as I say, it's 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 not so. My story is not so remarkable because I had um, my wife supporting me. But there are people who do this, and and they don't have anything, and they they still push through it. And it just shows. I I like to believe that I would still be that person if I didn't have all the support that I had from Jen. But it's as you say, it's 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 weird because before I could architectural visualization i'm creating an image i'm I'm creating an artwork which is used for the sole purpose of selling a building or a structure to um, a property developer or to people who are going to buy into that property so it is very very commercial um, but there was never a case where i felt Fulfilled. Fulfilled or that it was really an agonizing problem-solving situation. It was a very easy process. Now, when I draw with tattooing, I'm more proficient than I've ever been before because I draw every day. You just get better and better, and that's what people don't understand. If you, Some people think, as you were saying, oh, I feel like creating something today. I'm going to draw a little doodle. And you start drawing, and then it doesn't come out the way you want it, and you're kind of like, oh. I can't believe this came out this way. I'm going to give it a break for a while. It's not like that with my drawing. Every single time I put pen to paper or I get to the part where I'm actually on my iPad to create stencils, it's it's agonizing. It's, it's a problem-solving situation. It's stressful. And the important thing that I've found with it is just discipline. It's to push past that point where you're not happy with what you see you got to change some things. You don't know what it is. You're going to try this. doesn't work. You're going to try that. doesn't work. So it, it is really, it's not a airy, fairy, happy process. It is a intense, but, but it's a need. It's a need. When you get to that point where it doesn't work, you still got to push through. And I think maybe that's a misconception that a lot of people have of creative industries. A lot of people think like, oh, what a fun time. You're in your studio and you're painting and you're drawing. Like, oh, it's just so romanticized and lovely. But people don't realize it to us as much as we love the process and we love what we do as creative people. It's still a job to us. Yeah. It's still you need to put in that dedication. You put in that time to develop and to make something that whether it's a commission or for an exhibition, you need to push through and you need to solve those problems to produce works of art or drawings or tattoo stencils so that you can not only grow as yourself, but it's for your clients, for the galleries. Um, it's not just me romanticizingly mm. painting, drinking a glass of wine. You know, it's, yeah. it is a job and you a job eat. that if you want to be successful, you need to take seriously and like you said, have that um, dedication and that motivation to kind of succeed. Just, I just want to touch on the drawing issue mm-hmm. real quick. And what you're saying is so, I can relate to it so perfectly, is that this drawing process is so hard. You know, when you say to people, I'm, I'm going to go and sit and draw now. They're not, it's not understood that that is what it is. It's such a process of self-evaluation and 
character building in a way because you constantly are not happy with what you're seeing. I can Absolutely. I can relate to that so well. And it's not, oh, cool, you're going to sit and draw a little picture. It's, it's so hard. It's it, so difficult. And what I want to ask you about that is, like, how long have you been drawing? Because you now, how many years have you been in the tattoo industry? So tattoo, as a professional tattooer, I've been working for four years. And I had an apprenticeship for about three years. So I've been actively involved in drawing specifically for tattooing, which is quite different from from any other kind of drawing, which is something you learn when, you, when you're apprentice. I mean, certain drawings will not work as tattoos, and you have to start thinking in a very um, cutthroat way with regards to your work. It has to, the lines have to be clean. There's got to be enough space between them, depending on the size of the tattoo. You've got to think about the longevity of the tattoo because the body changes, skin stretches, ink settles. You can't have things too tight and small, so it just looks like a blur afterwards. So it's about seven years that I've been focusing on drawing for tattoos and specifically drawing wabori, which are Japanese tattoos. Um, it's, it is hard. It is not easy. And it is the most fulfilling thing that I've ever done as well, as far as an artistic expression is concerned. And then when you finally get to put it in the skin it's that's even better then it's it's just incredible to see the, were you drawing prior to that so i used to draw quite a bit i used to paint um there was a stage in my life between being a interior designer and a graphic designer um before i started architectural visualization i had a period of about two years where i was painting um canvases i had two little shows at the premises gallery with the trinity sessions um, Marcus and Stephen, and um, I was drawing a lot then. It was very emotive drawing and painting. There was no real structure to it. Um, you know, I kind of I did, at the time I, I saw myself as being it. it the work, the output was a, kind of like 1980s neo-expressionism. You can see it. You can see that I'm heavily influenced by um, urban artwork, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Um, Francesco Clemente, there's not a lot of adherence to um, classical drawing. It's more emotive. It's more about how you're feeling now and what you can put on the canvas. Uh, there's lots of cutting and chopping and using different elements. And um, it's a very different discipline. And that before I started drawing for tattoos, that's how I used to draw. Architectural visualization, I was sketching entirely using a computer which is quite different. And I thought when I started my apprenticeship, oh, I'm so artistic, it's going to be so easy, I know how to draw, I'm not scared of making mistakes, this is going to be a breeze. And it was the hardest to date. Learning to tattoo and learning to draw for tattoos has been the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It is a daily fight against myself so fascinating to me what you're saying is like you're learning to draw for tattoos because i think so often i've always you'll have a lot of people like oh if you can draw you should just be a tattoo artist it's as simple as that if you can draw you can do that it's the same thing but there has to be a certain style there has to be a certain approach to it because the way i see it is like there's more on the line you know, like literally, like figuratively and literally speaking, is that it's not just you 
haphazardly just drawing on a piece of paper or painting on a canvas. You have to be more refined. You have to be more disciplined. You have to be a lot more confident in your line work because it's going onto someone's skin. And I think what's so interesting, you'll often hear some, um, how people describe drawings or anything to do with, um, art was like, Oh, it's such a confident line being drawn. Mm. But with tattooing, you have to be confident in you that do. line. You do. And if you're not confident in that line, you can't go back. What I'm so interested in is like, when did you then get to that point of developing your drawing skills where you are confident in that line? So in the beginning, um, I was, as I said before, I came into tattooing not because I was enamored with tattoos. I mean, I come from her secular Jewish Orthodox background where no one had a tattoo except my um, crazy uncle Jeremy who hand poked a star which looked like a oblong-esque circle after years and years of bleeding out there was there was no I I had no knowledge of it I had no experience with it Um, and it was was it, it was difficult. I approached tattooing because I wanted to do Japanese tattoos. I didn't find Japanese tattoos because I love tattoos. So it was always I was always very focused. And from the beginning, um, what helped me a lot was Ross, who taught me, told me in the beginning, forget about the Japanese stuff. Just draw me an American traditional skull. That's all I want to see you do. Something simple. Just draw that and. Obviously, I couldn't draw it. It's very difficult. Simple, simple little drawings like that, they, they are, it's, it, it is hard. It's hard to get your hand into it. And it, every day, I'm still not confident. Like, I'm happy now. I'll draw a, a leg sleeve or a back piece ready to go on the skin. And really, drawing is just, it's for me, it's the beginning process. But for me to draw a back piece, a traditional Japanese kameneko, which means a turtle back, which covers... From the top of your shoulders and the underside of your neck goes all the way down your back. Um, Laterally, it ends sort of just before the mid of your body under your armpits. Goes down over your butt and it goes down halfway down the back of your thighs. That's why it's called a turtle back. For me to design that and be happy to put it on skin takes me between 30 and 40 hours. And that is before you put it on the skin. And then to actually tattoo that can take like another because I'm still new to the game and I'm very pedantic about putting my lines in. I work slowly and I work carefully can take me between 40 to 70 hours. It's a big process. Is there any room for error in tattooing? I mean, there has to be because not everything is always going to be perfect, but what are the margins for error in tattooing? So I think I think you obviously, when you look at any tattoo, 99% of tattoos, you look at American traditional style tattoos, you look at fine line work, you look at what's very popular now, black and gray realism, there isn't a lot of margin for error. If you've got to pull a clean outline for a rose, it's got to be perfect. And so many things can go wrong when you tattoo. If you're not stretching the skin enough, the skin bounces, and what happens as the skin moves away from the needle as it bounces, 
the line gets thinner and then as it bounces up into the needle, it can get fatter. So you can get like a very wavy sort of a line. If the needle is too deep, you can get blowouts where the actual ink goes underneath the skin and it actually spreads out underneath the skin and looks like a bruise. There's so many little things that can go wrong. Um, so you have to be clean and you have to be as perfect as you possibly can be. But now this is the thing. Wabori, Japanese tattooing, I think... I'm not saying that you can be sloppier with your lines or I'm not saying you can be sloppier with your composition or your drawings, but I think there is more of a margin for error, so to speak, with the style. Um, there's a Japanese aesthetic philosophy, which uh, I think it's around the 12th century was developed in Japan by Zen monk who was making a tea set. Now, before that, um, as is most things with Japan, a lot of the culture comes from China and Korea with the advent of Buddhism coming across into, into Japan. And if you look at around that era, pottery um, and, and any kind of artisanal work that came from China was highly refined. Fine bone China, you have a very thin piece of clay creating this beautiful ceremonial tea set, beautifully drawn. And then a Zen monk, and obviously with the whole attitude of Zen Buddhism, which came from Chan Buddhism, which came from China, um, it was a whole different approach to an aesthetic philosophy, and it's called wabi-sabi. Um, there's many books that have been written about it. I try and apply this aesthetic philosophy to my work, and I see a lot of Japanese artists do it as well. And the main the main sort of tenets of this philosophy is that the work has to feel rustic, has to feel hand-drawn, has to have a sense of imperfection, and it has to have a sense of not being complete. So this Zen monk, when he created, let's say, the first work of wabi-sabi, first ceremonial tea set, it, I mean, if you have an untrained eye or if you're not too keen on, on pottery, you would think that someone gave his five-year-old kid a whole clump of clay and told them to make a tea set. It's very rough. It's very, it has a lot of soul in it. And it's because of these imperfections. It's because of these, these, um, it, it's, it's not as easy. It's like Jackson Pollock with these splatter paintings. An uneducated eye would look at it and say, oh, I can do that. And it's just a couple of splatters. I'll just give me some paint. I'll show you. It's not that. He had a method. There was a philosophy behind his work. There was a state of mind he entered into when he made that. And, and nothing had ever been done before. It's the same with wabi-sabi, with crockery. Another great element of this, this aesthetic style was if something was broken, it would be repaired with a vein of gold. So you would have this imperfect, beautiful piece of art which has been smashed and reassembled with a gold vein. It's stunning. And I think that that, that for me is my approach towards, towards horimono, which is another word for Japanese tattoo. Everyone uses the word irizumi. Um, it's become the new set standard for describing Japanese tattoos, but it's not actually correct. Irizumi is pretty specific towards criminal tattoos. I mean, it was the word used when when tattoos were used as a punitive punishment. It was a punitive thing um, in China and in Japan. I think in Korea as well, I'm not sure. Depending on your crime, 
you would have a band tattooed around your arm in different positions, different thicknesses, different amounts of bands. It would uh, change from um, it would change from area to area. Uh, in some cases, very far back, I'm not sure on the exact dates, but they would actually tattoo the like the kanji for dog on your face if you committed a specific crime. Um, that is kind of that's kind of what Irizumi was, and then Irizumi became very much associated with yakuza tattoos. Let's not kid. Like Japanese tattoos, the source as we see them now comes from yakuza. That's where it comes from. That's why it's very much frowned upon in Japan still. I mean, when I went to Japan, I couldn't believe how I was treated walking around with the t-shirt. It was a little insane. A taxi driver spat at me. Oh when I God. asked him for a lift. So there's a lot of, uh, it has a great history. And I think mm-hmm. taking it out of that context and putting it in a Western tattoo context or putting it in a South African tattoo context, it's not very popular here. Like people are starting to get it now. I'm finding I'm getting more clients. But when you remove it culturally from Japan and you put it into the West, it's it's like it's a way of almost snipping all that negative connotation for an art form which should really be celebrated it's beautiful nothing looks like a japanese tattoo um it has so much depth it has you know it's not just a dragon there's there's a there's a whole idea behind the symbol Mm. and these symbols are still living they're not dead symbols um they they very much alive it's so apparent to me where Japanese style tattooing is not that prominent in South Africa. You see it existing in the States, some um, really incredible tattoo artists within Europe. Um, and Australia with, and New and Zealand, Australia. wow. And that's just looking at the Western sphere of Japanese yes. tattooing. But I mean, that's how I got to know you is because yes. my husband wanted a Japanese style tattooing. It's definitely finding someone who understands that history understands that um, tradition and I think that is so important throughout any artistic practice I find I think it is so crucial for you to understand what you are doing and where it comes from because everything has a context you're doing yourself a disservice as a creative and as an artist using that style or those techniques whether it's across the board whether it's you're working with Japanese style or you're working with uh, American traditional. You have to understand that context. It's so interesting. I don't know what, what is the fascination for you with Japanese culture and philosophy and, you know, maybe are there other people in South Africa, how, I mean, other than it's you wanting a Japanese tattoo or how did it come about? Because you obviously spend a huge amount of time researching. Pretty much that's all I'm reading for years and years and years it's like i occasionally can occasionally can fit like a novel or another piece of work in um normally like neurobiology or the occasional uh atheist work by sam harris which is actually they're great pieces but it's all consuming and the thing is to become a deshi in japan which is an apprentice for traditional tabori, traditional Japanese tattooing. This apprentice can last eight years. The deshi traditionally lives with his master and does everything for him, cleans his house. He is made personal assistant, and he basically has to steal with his eyes. He basically has to watch. 
he has to get tattooed, he has to prepare needles because with traditional Japanese tattooing, you have to assemble your needles, you have to you have to uh, basically grind down your ink, which is a specific kind of sumi ink that you use. You a, a lot of them use pigments and. I would love to get to the stage. This is this is my goal. This is my aim. So from when I became an apprentice, this is where I want to go. I want to get to a point where I'm not figuring things out for myself. You know, it's kind of loose. I'm 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 a Westerner. I haven't had a master. It's very hard for me to go and live in Japan for four years when I have a family here in South Africa. Um, so I've I've tried to adhere as closely as possible to the traditions and it's very important to me but it's not so important to other western tattoo artists guys who are just tattoo artists and they get a client who comes in and says oh, i want to get a dragon on my thigh and that's fine and you see the dragon on the thigh and it has a specific look to it which is not japanese and you'll see mistakes like it'll have too many claws or there will just be a characteristic in the face which will i can see that the reference for that came from like an American tattoo artist in 1995. You know, it has a specific look. Same with Koi's. That's my that's my pet hate. This is the level that I've gotten to is when you can see that a, a, Westerner, a Western artist hasn't drawn the work. They've used flash that they found on the internet because this is how tattoos work. There's nothing wrong with it. Tattoos are basically copying images from the past and putting them on the body. Some of the first tattoos were literally pictures taken from magazine adverts. I'm talking about in, in the States and in Europe in the, the, the 30s and the 40s. So there is an element of copy-paste, and it's absolutely authentic. It, it is almost as if you could say it's pastiche as an art form, because mm -hmm. that's what it is, and that's what gives it its, its kind of its, its flavor. But I think the line should be drawn, and I'm very no one else well there must be some artists who feel this way in south africa but um i don't think you should be using flash from another japanese artist i think you should take it seriously because i so many things just take a koi for an example a koi shouldn't look angry and you can see when a lot of artists who don't know much about Japanese work, they make the eyes look all angry and the nose is really stubby and it's swimming upstream and there are, um, there's, there's like, I don't know, chrysanthemum flowers and there's a lotus flower. And already this, this breaks a lot of, and I, I wouldn't call them rules or laws, but there is a tradition and they don't know the tradition and they put a whole lot of things together and it's inelegant. Then it is pastiche, not as an art form. Then it is just putting something together because this particular client wants this style tattoo and I don't know anything about it, so I'm just going to give them what they want. And you, you see a lot of bad tattoos, not just in South Africa, everywhere. I never want to be that person. And I yeah. know I still, there's probably things that I'm making mistakes on my tattoos that I don't even know about it because I don't have a master telling me, you know, when you do morning glory flowers, like there's got to be one that's incomplete on the body. Um, this is something I've learned recently. So if you did a motif and there are morning glories in the motif, if there's every single morning glory has been colored, then it's actually seen as bad luck. Because if you pick a morning glory, I'm sure you've seen them, railroad flowers, they're all over Joburg. They're either purple or white or pink. The minute you pick them, they wilt 
like within seconds. So if you fill in every single morning glory, then it's bad luck because what you're doing is you're creating um, an image on someone's body which is basically glorifying the idea of wilting. So you always leave one unfinished. Wabi-sabi, again, there's that element of unfinished work which gives it its soul. I mean, you definitely don't want to be that person walking around with a tattoo in a foreign language that you think it means something. And then when you go to that country, they're actually like, you don't you know what you're carrying around on your body. And with this imagery that you're saying, I mean, you really don't want to be tattooed by someone who's not understanding the philosophy and the sure. connotations and the symbolism of these things. So sure, that is incredibly important. And I wanted to ask you also, you go do these, I mean, before COVID, obviously, mm. you, you did the Japanese conferences and um, you were tattooing people. Is that what you call them, the conferences? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did one, I did a convention in Shanghai in, mm. I think it was 2018. I was tattooing in Shanghai at the conference. Very, very weird conference. It wasn't very well organized and all the other artists who, who do, I mean, there's tattoo artists pre-COVID who their career was going from one convention to the next in the States, in Europe, in Japan. It's an incredible thing. Um, our Cape Town tattoo convention, which unfortunately we wasn't able to go through last year or this year thus far, is the most incredible tattoo convention here in South Africa. The caliber of artists, the way it's been produced, the way it was put together – that was the first convention that I went to is when I was still an apprentice and I went to one that was at the Cape Town Convention Center and it blew my mind. There, there were artists there, like world famous artists sitting in the booth right there, just doodling, scribbling, ready to work. And, and you tattoo artists are, might look scary, but they, they're pretty friendly, you know, and it's a great way to, to learn, just to watch. Best way to learn how to tattoo is to get tattooed, honest to God. And um, the one in, in Shanghai was so crazy for me because I had only been tattooing for about a year when I got invited to the conference. So I definitely jumped, jumped at that opportunity. As I've mentioned my wife before, she was able to pay for my ticket and my entry. I would never have been able to do that without her. So I'm very lucky. And when I was at the conference, there were like 300 artists and there were literally three Japanese masters there, one of which um, lives in Australia. He's actually a Canadian. His name is Horosumi. And then he was there with someone called Horikashi. And then there was someone there called Horitada. Now, all these guys are literally some of the best artists in this tradition. I don't want to say style. It's a tradition because it's not just about making a koi fish look good. Their, their, their considerations about how you place the koi on the body, um, what flower or what, what leaf should be placed with it, whether it's going up or going down. These all come from, from ideas going all the way back to China. Just talking about the koi fish, if a koi fish is swimming upstream on someone's body, you could say that the implication is that the person who's wearing the koi realizes that they have unfulfilled goals in their lives, that they've still got a long way to go, and that this is how, this is them um, admitting that they've still, they have goals to achieve. So the thing is, when koi uh, travel up waterfalls and upstream in China, they do it during the spawning season. And it's incredible to see because they literally do try to climb up waterfalls. And 
that only happens in autumn. So you pair a koi swimming upstream with momiji, which are autumn maple leaves. That's why it doesn't make sense to do a koi swimming upstream with a peony, which is a, a summer flower. Um, it's very hard to learn these things. And here with these guys, these, these gods of industry for me, these gods of art, and what struck me as so incredible about it, how open and friendly and giving they all were. Horisumi, I mean, there is a language barrier with Horitada and Horikashi because they're both Japanese, but Horisumi, who's originally from Canada and now lives in Australia, just the most wonderfully open and giving person. And the the sort of attitude that you normally have with Japanese tattooing is it's very hard to break into it. It's very hard to find a master who is willing to help you. There's a lot of There's a lot of hazing. There's a lot of no, 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 you can't do it you're too old, you're too this, you're too that. And I've been told those things and I just have to push through because I'm not going to give up. And I'll get to a point where I can eventually learn Tibori because that's that's the, Tibori is the traditional hand poking method. I want to grind my own inks. I want to use Tibori sticks, but it's it's very difficult. It's it's very hard. It was amazing seeing them. They They were, it was like I was totally starstruck. I couldn't talk. Something that you've mentioned there that I love, and I, I mentioned it to me last week, is that ask for help. Because there's some artists that we've seen that we find like, oh, they're, they're, they're learning from this painter and that painter. And it's so amazing to see because often you'll see these like heroes in your art world. Like, I can't approach them. Mm. I can't. They'll, they'll mock me for asking like this really silly question of like, what type of terps do you like? If, as from a painting perspective, and it's like from a printmaking perspective, it's like, oh, but like, if I don't know that, they're going to look down on me as a printmaker. But when you don't get the response that you think you've built up in your head, it's like, what? These people are actually excited to share. Yeah. They want to talk about what they know. They want to share with you. They want to see you succeed. I've been seeing more recently that that's actually the case, is that people want to share. People want to talk about what they're doing. If it's your kind of the people just starting out or if it's like the masters in your field, there are more willing than not happy to share and to engage with you. And it's sometimes still uh, an idea of me as a creative person need to break down that all because I'm not in that clique or I'm not part of that group. It doesn't mean I can't approach those people and then I can't ask them a very simple question about being an artist. And you will find common ground with those people. Um, mm-hmm. But that's something that I've just experienced last week. And it's like, oh, I can actually have conversations with you people and learn from these people. And it's extremely exciting because it le- leaves you, it leaving that space, you are so inspired. And you're like, oh my word, I can actually do this. I can be this professional artist just as much as these people that I'm aspiring um, to become. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There, there is a different thing with tattooing though. It's like you don't share you do not like you share with your apprentice and you don't give him all your secrets. You just teach him enough and you just watch over him. So it is far more closed off. It is notoriously hard to break into and people are notoriously because it's, it's a tradition and not everyone should have access to this tradition that you as a master have worked so hard towards. So there is definitely a barrier specifically with Japanese tattooing, which is why I was so surprised by how open everyone was. So it's such a big 
tradition. There are so many things to know. And I'm not just talking about knowing the backstories or knowing the motifs. It, it just coming down to a point of how you put the ink in the skin, how you wrap the needle, how you make the needle. Those things are secrets. They will not tell me that. I will not get that. But I do get a certain amount of encouragement, guidance. I've been very, very lucky to have a lot of people who, who a lot of masters, I will call them masters, um, and people very good at this particular tradition of tattooing who have been open and it's been very exciting for me, but there's definitely a line I don't cross. There's certain things I don't ask because I know that's something that I'll have to earn over time mm-hmm. and I can't rush it. Yeah, and Elise, I think what you're saying, one thing that fascinates me about that and also what I appreciate so much about you, there's no ego in your practice. You know, you are so willing to learn and you never like, oh, I know all this stuff and, you know, That's I can't learn. Best. I can't learn from anyone else. And I think, you know, I want to address the, the issue of ego in, in tattooing and what you're saying now. Oh, like, what is what is the line between ego and respect, I suppose, because it is something, or, you know, if that's even the right word to put it, because as you say, there's certain things that you don't ask. You have to protect yourself. I mean, it's also someone could be, copying you somewhere else you putting all this time all this effort in um in developing your practice and understanding what you're doing and then someone's like taking these things they know you know all this stuff and then so they copy you they're copying you um so yeah what is the what is the ego issue in in tattooing i think i mean amongst tattoo artists and it's not just japanese tattooing because even though i'm trying to adhere to the traditional japanese um tradition and my work is I would like to call it traditional Japanese, but it's not yet entirely traditionally Japanese. So so to be completely honest and respectful, I have to say that it's Western style Japanese, or I can say that it is neo-Japanese. I would that I do have a traditional approach to it, but because of my lack of skills with the traditional tools and not having the information passed down to me officially by a master, I can't really call it traditional. Japanese tattooing as much as I want to. So the problem, the, it we joke about it. We call it tattitude. Like there are artists who are incredibly egotistical because you're a rock star. Tattoo artists, if you're a popular tattoo artist nowadays, you you are like a rock star. It's the same sort of thing. And what you see is a lot of artists who kind of, they hit that moment where all of a sudden they big on Instagram they're being booked up for months in advance. Everyone loves their work. You you definitely can see if some people are not guarded against it, the, the hair gets a bit big mm-hmm. and the attitude comes in. I come from, and this might be detrimental, but I come from architectural visualization. Now, when I was an architectural visualizer, I was in a big firm and um, we used to have students doing their like prac year I think it's fourth or fifth year for architects. And they would come in and they would be with us for a year and they would see me rendering because, you know, basically as far as architecture is concerned, I'm coloring in pictures and I'm making things pretty. Whereas they have to use CAD and work out, you know, weights and how many pillars need to be per floor, et cetera, et cetera, can be a bit dry. And I found that the, I just naturally want to share my information. So I would sit the students down, like every day I would say, this is the software you need. This is Photoshop, this is 3D Max, this is V-Ray. 
This is what you need to know to spit out your first rendering. You don't have to learn 90% of, of the software. I'm giving you a pipeline to create amazing images next week. Here are all my resources, all the things I've built, all the chairs, all the people, all the plants over the years. Go for it. Do your best. I, f I felt good doing that. I think sharing is so important. Passing, passing the torch. And then moving into an tattoo environment where it is that is the antithesis of what you're supposed to do in tattooing you don't reveal your secrets these are these are hard one by techniques people who were tattooing in the 30s and 40s earning a pittance working till 12 o'clock every night sweating it out when there was no tattoo industry to speak of before so you find that you have to be guarded to respect them. And that's also why you see, and it's, it's, it's a weird thing as well, is some people, some artists, because you can argue it's because of COVID. There's a lot more tattoo artists now than there have ever been. A lot of people who are trying to break into it. Um, there are a lot of people who are dropping their prices for full days or for hourly work to insanely low amounts. And on the one hand, you can say that tattoo artists, established tattoo artists get upset with that is because a client, they could be losing out on clients because instead of paying the full day rate, which is a reasonable rate for good artwork, they'll go to someone who's just starting and pay like a thousand rand for seven hours of work. This is happening. Um, it's not just a slap in the face to the tattoo artists in the industry. It's a slap in the face to everyone who worked their asses off for the last six or seven decades to get to the point where we are right now. You, you, there's certain things, and it looks egotistical. It looks like when artists are bitching about like these scratches coming in and, and charging a thousand rand, it seems kind of small-minded and arrogant and miserly, but it, it's actually not. There is a certain respect that has to come with what you are doing and for the people who have been before you interesting about that is that exists over so many creative industries mm -hmm. and a lot of the time and i've seen that exactly exists within the photography industry it's a very big thing um and even within like my bookbinding industry where it's like you'll see people being the person that comes into the industry and undercutting everyone else yeah you are doing so much more detriment to your industry not just you think, okay, this is great. I can just charge a thousand rand for a day's work rather than my peers who are charging 7,000. Yeah. You think that I'm going to get the clients. I'm going to be the, like, the top dog in that because I'm undercharging. But you're actually putting a bad stamp on the industry. Absolutely. And it's now you're doing a disservice to yourself because now you can't up your prices because you've now set a standard for yourself that you're going to only charge that it, it doesn't give you more room to grow but the problem is you're also now putting a different standard on the industry so what i always tell people who are interested in getting tattoos and i've had someone come to me like oh so i see you said some tattoos that's really cool i'm going to get one next week and they're only charging me like 500 rand i'm like that's a bad thing. <laughs> that's <laughs> no. not a good thing. Totally. You, that's <laughs> not something you need to be boasting about. Absolutely. What I tell people is like when it comes to, because often you'll have people who don't have tattoos, they'll see other tattooed people and they're like, oh, let's get some advice because like they're interested in getting one. And I just tell people, 
pay the price that they say. Don't haggle. Don't think that you'll go get it somewhere cheaper because you're going to get something that artist hasn't fully researched what they're doing and they're putting on you. You're going to get that flash that they saw on Instagram from an artist three years ago. Totally. They're going to put that onto your body. They also then don't respect that industry standard by not charging enough. And this is just me as a as a client mm. seeing this happen. Mm. Um, you want someone, the reason why you pay so much, and it's with any creative field, the reason why you're going to pay up to 7,000 rand a day for a tattoo artist or whether you're paying 3,000 rand for a book or you're paying X amount for a print. It's not because we're trying to be cheeky and making you pay more, but it's like this is the value of what you're getting. Mm -hmm. You're not just getting this piece of paper. You're getting the fact that that person has trained for a decade to put that tattoo into your skin. They have the knowledge. They have the expertise they have the experience. And I think that's something that I'm finding so important in your industry is that experience. experience. Because you have to be so much on your own on a lot of things is that you're learning very much trial by error. And you're trying to pick up everything that you can. And it's a lot in every other industry. It's with your master printers. The reason why they're called master printers and why prints that they work on are set at that price is because it's worthy of their experience and their time and their knowledge that you can't get from someone who's only been doing it for a year. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, someone who doesn't have any tattoos, you you guys are like look like you've been hit with newspapers, <laughs> wet newspapers, like my mom would always say. I don't have any tattoos, but I can tell you something. I would pay a fair penny before I'd let someone put something on my body Ooh, that I'm exactly going to be right. walking around with for the rest of my life. I mean... It's a confidence building issue to actually get that mark made on your body, but I would rather pay someone a ton. That's the way it should be. Absolutely. But that being said, everyone has to start somewhere. And there are people that might be willing to pay less, maybe don't, you know, they do something small, whatever. You know, it's quite, it's a question. Like, how do you trust someone to actually put that thing on? If they've been tattooing for not a long time, you like, you want to support people in the industry. We know a few people, as you said, that it's now flared up in COVID, like everyone's wanting to tattoo. And it sounds like incredibly difficult industry to break into and to learn how to do the things. And it's a closed community, it sounds like. It is a closed community. Um, you know, but how do you, how do you support people wanting to go into tattooing and then, yeah, like that is, that's quite, that's quite a tricky one. That was part one of Daniel Feinberg's podcast episode about tattooing and some insight into the art of Japanese tattooing. Stay tuned for part two. For more information on the platform, visit our website, choppedliversociety.com and like us on Facebook and Instagram and bring your friends. And this podcast was produced by Jonathan Bell at Bell Studios in Johannesburg.